If you would like, just raise your hand. They'll hand you one of those. I'm going to be coming to Psalm 139 in a little bit. But before that, let me just take you back into history. Okay? We are talking over this last few weeks about our Bible and how it applies with the elections. And we're dealing with a number of issues. But going back in history, let me ask you a question. Okay? There is, uh, do you think we have better education than they did years ago? Hmm. My dad only had an eighth grade education, and so when he graduated, quote unquote, from uh, school, he was allowed to just go work on the farm, and he had to do a certain test to be done. Now, I don't know what test they did in Minnesota. Maybe they had him write their name. I don't know. But um, here in, in uh, Kansas, they had a different test. And this is the eighth grade graduation test that they had at the turn of last century. And let's just see how you would do if you had to take this test. Let's just do, in this test, it was a six-hour test. The one section was grammar. Let's see how you would answer this. Give the nine rules for the use of capital letters. Name the parts of speech and define those that have no modifications. Define verse, stanza, and paragraph. What is punctuation? Give the rules for punctuation marks or the principal marks. Write a composition of these words showing. Now, how would you do if that, and again, you notice I've left out some of the questions. How would you do in the grammar part? Well, let's go a little bit further. Let's do math, okay? You're giving an hour and a quarter to do the math test. Here's what you have to do. Name and define the fundamental rules of math. Calculator? I, you know, that's what most would have. A wagon box is two feet deep, ten feet long, three feet wide. How many bushels of wheat will it hold? Find the interest for eight months, 18 days at 7%. Or what is the cost of these boards that measure this length and at that price? Here's, write a bank, a, blank, a bank check. Well, none of us need that anymore, do we? We just do it by phone. A promissory note and a receipt. How would you do on the math? And again, this is only a few of them. Let's do U.S. history. Okay, some of you are going, ugh. Here we go. This isn't so hard. Give an account of the discovery of America by Columbus. Relate the causes and results of the war. Show the territorial growth of the U.S. Write about each of these different individuals. Name the major events that occurred on those dates. I don't know. Okay. Let's do another area. Geography. In geography, what is climate? (laughs) Describe the mountains in North America. Name and locate all the principal trade centers in the United States. Myerstown? I don't know. Name all the countries of Europe and give the capital of each one. Describe the movements of the earth. Give the inclination of the earth. Then let's do orthography. Most of you are going, what? Okay. That's one hour. What is meant by alphabet, phonetic, orthography, etymology, syllabication? What are the elementary sounds? How are they classified? What are the following? And give examples. There they are. Define the following prefixes and use them in connection with the word. How would you do on this test? Okay. Now, it was total exams. Doesn't that give you a new appreciation for if somebody says, I only had an eighth grade education? Okay. I, I say that to say this, that it is true our education system has drastically changed. And we are by far a, mar, a far more technical society. But are we producing smarter people? Okay. Here, let me, let me take you this way. Okay. We have advanced in industry. Okay. We have advanced in appliances and technology. But have we advanced in what's really important? Let's talk about family, okay? The family has changed drastically in the United States over the last 100 years as far as the nuclear family and how it's set up and the number of people in particular that are being raised in one-parent homes. Have families become better and stronger? Let's do another question. 
Do you think our country has lost its spiritual moorings? Okay, okay, let me, let me give you a point. Okay, let me take you because we're always into polls and stats. Americans that were polled recently, okay, that if they thought there's a moral decline in America, you, most of you said yes, you are in the far majority. Most people in our country say, yes, we are on a moral decline. Why do you think it is happening? It is interesting, the response that was given. 29, almost a third, due to the lack of Bible reading that's taking place. Another group said, due to the influence of media, TV and music. I, I guarantee Hollywood did not say, agree with that one. Okay. Then another one said, it's due to the corporate greed. The way th- things have been going in our country. You say, okay, has America changed? Here's one for you. List someone who is a significant Christian leader that you know of in society. When they did this, 41% said, I don't know of anybody. 41% of those in, that were polled in America. Of the rest who responded, here was their top listing. Billy Graham was listed. The Pope was listed. As well, Joel Olstein was listed. As well, Barack Obama was in the top four. Okay. Of the representative group that was polled in this, 43% said, it doesn't matter what religion you believe in because they all believe the same thing. 54% disagree. By the way, I'm with that 54%. Okay. 50% of Americans say God will allow all people access into heaven no matter what they believe. 40% disagree. I'm with the 40%. Okay. That you must be born again. Okay. Of that same group that claimed to be Christian, okay, 78 said God is all-powerful, all-knowing creator who rules the world. 40% said Satan is not a living being but merely a symbol. Ooh, okay. 23% said the Bible is inspired without error and to be taken literally. What scares me is the other 77%. Okay. Let's take a little bit further. Of those who claim to be Christians, 39% said Jesus sinned while he was here on earth. 55% said the Bible is accurate in all its principles. But we go a little bit further. Now it gets a little bit more scary. Okay, because now we're going into a different age group. 20% believe the Bible is inspired. Just 20% of the teens that were polled. One-third said the Bible, only one-third, should influence how people vote in an election. This is getting scarier. Okay, we'll go a little bit further. Now, this group is the evangelicals. This wouldn't include the Catholics. It wouldn't include your typical Lutherans or mainline denominations. It would be those who claim to be born again. Christians. Of those teens that were polled, two-thirds said they know the basic truths of Christianity. But when they were asked further about some of those basic truths, two-thirds reject the existence of Satan. Of that, three-fifths reject the existence of the Holy Spirit. Of that group, 50% said Jesus did sin. And that's the basics of Christianity? Wow. Americans polled about certain behaviors... And what is morally acceptable behavior? Here's the, uh, the results of this many said that gambling is acceptable morally. Cohabitation is accepted morally. Sexual fantasizing, fantasizing is accepted. An abortion is accepted morally. Viewing pornography is accepted. Using profanity is accepted. Of the group, drunkenness said this. Homosexual sex is said uh, that. Having sex with somebody other than your spouse, 42% says it's morally acceptable. We are living in scary times. It is scary. 
on right and wrong, this is what really shocks me. People, knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal choice or personal experience. Here's the results of it. The number who said yes of the overall poll, 57% said yes. Of the young people, 74% said yes. That means they are their own standard of right and wrong. That's scary. So we go a little bit further. Of the evangelical, those who claim to be born again, do you believe there is an absolute moral truth or code to live by? Let's rephrase that to say, do you believe the Bible is the code by which you should live? Here's the response. The, those who said yes, of the adults who were claiming to be born again in America, only 44%. Only 44% said there's absolutes to live by. Of the young people, 9%. We are living in, in a terrible time. We are losing our spiritual moorings. You ask me, why am I taking time to talk about some of these issues and social issues? Because there's a generation who do not know what the Bible says about some of these social issues. And how it is affecting our country because it's, going, it's being left up to however you think, whatever feels good, whatever is convenient, just stay out of trouble, stay out of difficulty and do whatever. It's a sad, sad state because we are facing moral decline and you and I should know better. Righteousness is what exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any nation. That moral decline is going to hurt this country. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. We get warnings from scripture. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked are ruling, the people will grieve. We read elsewhere in scripture where there is moral rot within the nation, its government topples easily. But the wise and knowledgeable leaders, they bring stability. We read scornful men bring a city into a snare, but wise men will turn away that wrath. We read in scriptures that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. He's speaking to the Lord. Blessed are the people that know your joyful sounds, that worship you, that recognize you. He goes on, who walk, O Lord, in the light, who exalt your name and your righteousness. We want to be that type of people if we want God to bless our homes, our church, our country. We need to be righteous. We need to be acknowledging the Lord. We need to have moral, moral uh, compass that says we will follow your word. And we need to address and find out what does the Bible say about some of these issues. And we need to vote according to some of these based upon the scriptures. Now let's talk about that one issue. That one issue that is really a debated topic right now, and even in this election. What do you think about abortions? 29% say it should be legal in all cases. Those who say it should be legal with restrictions, 50%. Another 19% say, and only 19% say it should be illegal. When we did that polling amongst evangelical, born-again, quote-unquote Bible-believing believers, what do you think about abortion? 78% said make it illegal in most cases. Where's the other 22%? There's an element even within churches that have not gone to the Word of God to study. What does the Bible say about this issue? This issue is a scary issue. We have 58 million people in this country that their lives have been cut short. 
There is every 29 seconds, I have 30, but it's 29 seconds, another abortion is taking place in America. If we were to give you that same thing we did about three weeks ago, that equates to saying, let's get rid of these states, Pennsylvania, everyone in Ohio, everyone in New York, everyone in Maryland, everyone in New Jersey. That's 58 million people. Let me see if I can give you a different, different way of looking at it. Let's take 58 million people out of America today. That would wipe out the population of each one of these states altogether. We would lose all of these people. Almost half of the states would be gone. Because we're a country that has more population centers. It's a lot of people. And yet, in the United States, it is legal to perform this abortion at any time prior to the birth. That's legal in the United States. 150,000 of the abortions take place in the second term, beyond the third month. It's an industry that is making bucks in America, and yet we have the arguments that some of you are befuddled by. The arguments that go, women have the right over their own bodies. It saves lives. We, we, if we don't have it legalized, people will, will still seek it out and people will die. So we need to have abortions to save lives. Is there some type of contradiction in that statement? Let's go a little bit further. The argument is it's better to have, get rid of the children than have an unwanted child who will suffer. The argument says it's an act of mercy for someone who is pregnant because of rape and incest. The argument is the baby is not a real person. It's just tissue. And so we even have defined the terms to just qualify that we don't call the baby. I'm going to use it just at the beginning. The idea we don't call it a baby. We call it a fetus. Okay. We use terminology. And we don't say you know, pro-abortion. The argument is called pro-choice. Okay. To, to modify it. Well, the argument goes the majority of Americans are pro-choice. Okay. How do you answer such persuasive arguments? How do the young people respond to this when if they go to school and in the school, this is what they're going to be told. This is some of the arguments. And it's going to be expressed. Can I take you a little bit of walk down history and a little bit of facts before we turn into the scriptures? Just give you some background. The background, the proponents say that this child is not a person. As a non-person, that child, unborn child, has no rights in America. Okay? Has no, no protection in the law. That this fetus is just a different set of tissue, just like any other tissue, foreign tissue, in the mother's body. That's the argument. All the way back, when this first was, was decided on Roe versus Wade, back in 73, what's really interesting is look and say, okay, what was the debate at that point? The debate was not, the discussion was not over whether this was a human being or not. You know why? Because when the Supreme Court was taking up this case, a number of doctors and medical authorities, leading medical authorities in America, prepared a brief to present to the court. And in that brief, they were giving them their medical understanding about children in the womb. And whether they are, they are a person or not a person. And when they gave this report, here's what it read. Clearly and conclusively, modern science, all these different areas, establishes the humanity of an unborn child. The Supreme Court had this. 
when they made the ruling. By the seventh week, the preborn child bears the familiar external features and all the internal organs of an adult. The brain in configuration is already like the adult brain sends out impulses that coordinate function of other organs. The heart beats sturdily. The stomach provides digestive juices. The liver manufactures blood cells. The kidneys begin to take away the uric acid from the blood. Muscles and arms are set in motion. By week number eight, everything is already there that will be found in the full-term baby. The Supreme Court heard this. The Senate then a few years later held hearings discussing the humanity of the baby. Was the baby a person or was it not? Here's their mistake. They're missing terms and misusing terms saying uh, they're mixing up person with personality. We all know that the, that the unborn doesn't have a developed personality that we see. But that means therefore they're not a person because they're not fully developed They're not an individual. Well, let's take that to anybody who isn't fully developed because of impairment. Handicapped, does that make them a non-person? Well, let's take everybody who has not fully developed and are only in the process of development. That takes away all of those who have yet to reach puberty. Are they a non-person? Some of your parents say, I'm questioned that one. That whole argument is a dangerous, dangerous argument. Here's what the Senate concluded after all these witnesses. Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of life. The being that is alive and a member of the human species. There is overwhelming agreement in all the medical biology. Now that's the science part of it. Oh, by the way, just to throw this out. The pro-abortionists, when they came before the Senate, their witnesses that said it is not a person numbered one. They could find only one medical person who said, and his response was, I am not saying that based on medical reasons. I say it on philosophical reasons. They could not provide one person to debate, to, to, to uh, say that the, that the infant wasn't an infant in the womb. So we go a little bit further. And we say, okay, you're going to say, ladies, you're going to say that this is, this is just part of my body. We're not a separate, Really? The baby can have a totally different blood type than the mother. The baby can be a different gender from the mother. And you're going to say they're not a separate person? The placenta is to protect the baby from the mother's body attacking it. Really? The baby has its own eyes, its own skins, its own ear. You're going to say that this is not a separate, distinct human being? Because it hasn't been birthed? That argument is so foolish. That argument just... When you look at the beauty of the development of the child, it is absolutely a miracle. Amazing, 21-week-old child having surgery in the womb, puts his hand out and grabs the doctor's hand. That's not a child. That's not reflex from, or that's just tissue. <laughs> Bottom line is, we've got to go back to the Word of God. What does God's Word say? Is this a person? Throughout the scriptures, God refers to, and this is the last time I use fetus, he refers to the fetus as a child. We can take you to multiple passages. We can show you that the terms he used in scripture, and I'm just going to give them for reference. I want to get to Psalm 139. Throughout these different passages of scripture, you have God using the terms for brephos, for children in the womb, children outside the womb. He calls them the same. You have John the Baptist in the womb called a brephos. There was no, there was no distinction. He called them by the same terminology. In the uh, New Testament, you have the child being called a son or huias in the womb, 
outside the womb. We have in the Old Testament, the common term for children of all different ages was yelled. They were also talked about in the womb that the two boys that were twins were struggling. They are called yeleds as well. Scriptures by God's standard, he designates and identifies them as human beings even before they are born. If God does that, then we should too. Very simply, God says that the in-womb child is a child. Let me go a step further. You have some who will say, but the woman has a right to do with her own body. This is a major argument. And by the way, this was the argument before the Supreme Court. It could not be argued that the child, that the, that the unborn child isn't a person. That was taken away back in 73. So this was the discussion. The discussion became a woman's right to choose. But we've already pointed out and shown you from a medical point of view and from God's description that they are not, the the child is not the woman's body but a separate distinct individual. As well, if you're going to make this argument of, of all the woman's right to choose, what about the 25 million women that didn't get a right to choose, that were aborted? What about the idea that says that people do not have, even in this society, we do not allow somebody to harm another individual and say it's their right to choose. You can't do that in other areas. You can't attack somebody. You can't rip somebody off. You can't abuse your child, but you can abort it. What about the fact that in our society, a woman doesn't even have, or a man, doesn't even have the right to bring physical harm to their own body without some intervention? To say that they should have total freedom, that's the inconsistency of the argument is amazing to me. If somebody wanted to commit suicide, do we say, oh, it's her right to choose? If somebody wants to use drugs illegally, oh, it's her right to choose. If she wants to use her body to get money from different men of different sorts and prostitute herself, we say it's her right to choose, not in this society. But when we say, oh, she wants to take the life of her unborn child, oh, it's her right to choose. Let me respond without being vulgar. She had a right to choose when she had sex. She should have made the right choice then and not take it out on the baby. We go to the other arguments. And we could talk about them. This is one we've already mentioned. We're going to deal with the other one, the legalized abortion. Does it save lives? Really? Has it saved lives? We'll deal with it tonight. What about you know, the unwanted children? I'll give you some more stats this evening, but there should be, a, uh, there should be adoption rather than killing. The, uh, what about those who were raped and the incest? We'll give you the stats about that tonight, and how that has been becoming a bogus argument to justify millions and millions of deaths. The aborted fetus is not a person, not true. The majority of Americans are pro-choice. I'm not so sure you want to say that when you look at the polls that 29 said abortion on demand. The other 69% broken down said there has to be, at least, if not illegal, at least some restrictions. So you have this whole discussion. Besides, if we're going to make an argument about what everybody else thinks, that's dangerous ground. Because when we do what we think is right in our own eyes, man, we'll, just, we'll, we'll return to the day of the book of Judges. What we need to do is say, okay, what does God say about this topic? What does his word say? We already said that God calls the unborn a child. Let me give you something else. 
Another, another thought. God is very, very, very concerned about the preborn children. How do I know that? I'll show you, go in depth this evening. But in Exodus 22, 21, I, I think that's a mistake. 21, God has established laws that protected the child in womb. That if somebody brought harm to the child in womb, they were supposed to be punished for it. We'll deal with that tonight. Repeatedly, the prophets of old, and you saw in that video display some of these comments. The prophets of old said, God knew me. God cared for me while I was still in the womb. Job talks about it. Job in 31, and said, did not he that made me in the womb make this other fellow sitting next to me? God has fashioned both of us in the womb. Isaiah talks about how the Lord called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother, he made mention of my name. And now the Lord that formed me in the womb to be the servant. We read where Jeremiah, is, that was the quote that you saw minutes ago. Before I formed you in the belly, he says, I knew you and I've wanted you to become my preacher and I sanctified you to do this. Even in the womb, I had a plan for you. David in Psalm 119 talks about how how your hands made me and fashioned me. Psalm 139. Follow the text in Psalm 139 where God gives a lot of specific statements. In Psalm 139, jump down to verse 13. He says, for you have covered my reins. You covered me. Speaking to God, you covered me in my mother's womb. You were watching over me. You were looking over me. You had this, this care for me. He goes on. I will praise thee because I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knows right well. My substance was not hid from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The idea is while I was in the womb where I wasn't visible to anybody else, you knew me. My mom didn't even know I was there yet, but you knew me. He said, you covered me. You, you were watching me. You were putting me together. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being immature, incomplete, verse 16. In your book, all my members were written, which in countenance were fashioned. In other words, God had a blueprint, David is saying. A blueprint, a map, a building a plan that he was designing David. His abilities physically, his looks, his strengths, his physical weaknesses, his emotional his, uh, his mental capabilities, his talents, his skills, that God knew about this and he was fashioning that person in the womb already when he was incomplete. He had this blueprint, thy book and all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned according to that blueprint, when as yet there was none of them. And he goes on, how precious are your thoughts to me. David is making it very clear that even in the womb, God had designed me. God had prepared me. That God was making no mistakes whatsoever. When I was in the womb, God had prepared and planned. And even though somebody may not have wanted me, there's a story that is written by a medical doctor. This medical doctor was delivering a child and things didn't go right. And he debated in his mind, should I, should I allow the birth to go or should I just hesitate and the child's life be shortened. Several years ago a fragile young woman came to my office expecting her first baby. One month before she was due the baby was in a breech position. The death rate of breech babies was high because of the difficulty in delivering and the aftercoming head and the imperative need of delivering it quickly before the, uh, after the rest of the body was born. During the delivery, I waited as patiently as I could for the natural forces of expulsion to thoroughly dilate and firm the maternal structure. At last, the time had come. I gently drew down one little foot. I grasped for the other, but it would not come down beside the first one. 
To my consternation, I saw that the other little foot would never be beside the first one. The entire thigh, from hip to knee, was missing. I knew what a dreadful effect this would have on the unstable nervous system of the mother. The family would almost certainly become impoverished itself in taking the child to every famous orthopedist in the world. I saw this little girl sitting sadly by herself while the other girls danced and ran and played. I could slow down my hand. I could delay for a few short moments. No one in this world would ever know. The mother, after the first shock of grief, would be glad she had lost a child so sadly handicapped. The little pink foot on the good side bobbed out from its protecting towel and pressed firmly against my slowly moving hand, the hand into whose keeping the safety of the mother and the baby had been entrusted. I couldn't do it. I delivered the baby with her pitiful little leg. Every foreboding came true. The mother was in the hospital for several months. She looked like a wraith of her former self. As the years went on, I blamed myself bitterly for not having had the strength to yield to my temptation. Our hospital stages an elaborate Christmas party each year for the staff. This past year, three lovely young musicians on the stage played softly in unison with the organ. I was especially fascinated by the young harpist. She played extraordinarily well, as if she loved it. Her slender fingers flicked out across the strings, and her face was upturned as if the world in that moment were a wonderful and holy place. When the short program was over, there came a running down the aisle, a woman I did not know. Oh, you saw her, she cried. You must have recognized your baby. That was my daughter who played the harp, the little girl who was born with the only one good leg 17 years ago. We tried everything else first, but now she has a whole artificial leg on that side. Best of all, through all these years, she learned to use her hands so wonderfully. She is going to be one of the world's greatest harpists. She is my whole life, and now she is so happy. Here she is. The sweet young girl had quietly approached us. Her eyes were glowing impulsively. I took her into my arms. Behind her warm young shoulder, I saw the creeping clock of the delivery room 17 years before. I lived again those awful moments when her life was in my hand. At the last strains of silent night were fading. I finally found comfort that I had waited for so long. Can God use somebody who is imperfect? Yes. They're a people. They're a person. Every life is precious to God. Every single one. If every life is precious to God, then that li every life should be precious to us when it comes to what do we do with this issue. How do we respond? I think one of the simplest things we need to do is to realize that we as believers have a voice. We have a voice in the ballot box to try to stop the slaughter of the innocents. I want to warn you with another text before I take you back to Psalm 139. I'm going to warn you that in this election, what is very important is the judicial branch, that they make a lot of the rulings when it comes to abortion and the state's rights. We'll talk more about it tonight, how different states are trying different things to restrict a lot of the abortions, and it's going to court after court. If you and I see that this needs to stop and we do nothing, take note of this passage that the Bible warns us about. The Bible says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay every man according to his work? The warning is clear. 
You cannot say in ignorance that I, I, I just didn't know. You know. You cannot say, well, I, my, my one vote makes no difference. It makes a difference. You need, for the sake of the innocent, to speak up, to express, and to vote wisely and according to the moral principles of God's word when it comes to this issue of the life and death of millions of fellow citizens. Well, I want to take you a little bit further. We know that every life is precious to God, but can I take you to the gist of Psalm 139? God says, your life is precious to me. Watch how this whole psalm unfolds, and he gets to how you took care of me in the womb. Read with me as I read it out loud. You just follow along. Where we talk, and David is saying, here's how much you care for me, God. That's what this whole psalm is about. God, you care for me so much. And I remind you that when David is writing this psalm, David is at a low point in his life. His first wife has ditched him. His father-in-law has tried to kill him. His own companions in arms at one time wanted to get rid of him. He has had plenty of downs where people have rejected him. His own family, when dad is saying, when, when Samuel comes through and his dad says, do you have any sons here that might be the future king? His own dad marched all of his brothers but forgot about David. Totally forgot about David. He's been forgotten many times, but he's going to write a Psalm 139. And he says, God, you care for me like nobody else cares for me. God, you care for me so much that you keep really, really close tabs on me. Follow along as I read. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I'm sitting down. You know when I'm standing up. You understand my thoughts, even though you're far away. You compass my path and my lying down. When I'm sleeping, in other words, you're there. You are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know all about it. You have beset me behind, before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot even comprehend how much you care for me that you keep such close tabs on me. Oh, you know how that is, Mom. Dad, you know how you're in that store. You keep an eye like a hawk on your child. You, if they just, if all of a sudden you glance away and then they're not there, you look for them. You're not going to lose them. They are so precious to you. That's the way God thinks about you. God says, I keep tabs on you. I know where you're at. I'm watching you. David says, as a believer, here I know that my God knows everything. He is watching. He is caring for me so much so that he is with me. He is always with me wherever I go. Verse 7. Whither shall I go from your spirit, or whither shall I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, go sailing, you'll go down to the shore. Even there, your right hand leads me, and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I say, oh no, it's so dark out. It, I'm, God's not going to see me. Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness cannot hide me from you, but the night shines as the day, and darkness and light, they are both alike unto you. You know me. You are with me. You care that much that you never, ever, ever, you never leave me. You never forsake me. You are with me at all points, whether I be in Lebanon, whether I be in New Zealand, whether I be in California, whether I be at the Arctic. You are with me everywhere. If I'm high in a plane or if I'm down at the shore, you are with me. Oh God, you care that much about me that you like my company that much? David's saying, that's it. 
God loves you that much. He loves you so much that he has a unique plan and design for your life that we already read a few moments ago. Let's go a step further. He cares for you so much. Watch how he concludes this section. He says in verse 17, How precious also are are your thoughts about me. Oh God, how great is the sum of them. If I should number the times you think about me, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. God, you care for me so much that you think about me all the time. You're that much in love with me that I am, a, I am upon your thought, your mind, time and time and time and time again. Listen, the bottom line is this. The bottom line is God's crazy about you. That's the truth of what Scripture tells us. God loves us so very much that he's designed, he's planned, he knows where he's taking us, he has a plan for us. But the problem is, some have not responded to that love. Instead, the plan that some have designed is this. I don't want your plan, I want my own way. And that's innate in every one of us, all the way since in history, Adam and Eve said, we don't want what you tell us to do, we want to do it our way. And they plucked that fruit from the tree and they took it. And as a result, they rebelled against God's plan for their life. Though he provided for them, though he walked with them, though he cared for them. And ever since, that sin nature has been passed to each and every one of us. To the point that there are times we sit in church and we hear of God's plan and we say no. We hear of something that the Spirit convicts us about, we say no. We hear that God says that we're not supposed to lie, but we lie. We hear that God says that we're supposed to obey parents, but we disobey the parents. We hear that God says you're supposed to respect the authorities, but we don't. We hear that it's wrong to have immoral thoughts, but we have them. We harbor them. We focus on them. We hear that we're not supposed to be in in conflict with another person, but we allow it to go on. We, We continue. We justify ourselves. And God says, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you don't do what I want. I'm going to prepare places for you, but you reject me, you reject me. And I I, I want you to live with me in heaven. But if you persist in doing your own thing, if you persist in rejecting my grace, my goodness, my love towards you, I have no choice but to follow the rules established by the holiness that I have put into the plan at the beginning. That holiness says that if you harbor that sin and reject me, one day you're going to say unto me, Lord, Lord, why won't you let me into your kingdom? And I will say unto you, depart from me, ye workers of... Iniquity means your own thing. Because, he says, depart from me, you workers of doing your own thing, because I never knew you. And what he means by that is, we don't have a relationship. It is just one way. I care, I love, I give you breath, I give you, I give you all you need, I provide for you. And you, you just take and take and take. And you, you want to just do and do, you do your own thing. And if you persist and you reject my offer of forgiveness because you think you're good enough to do it on your own, he said, I have no choice, but you'll be rejected. If you refuse to establish a relationship with me, then I cannot let you into my heaven in the future. I care. I keep track of your words. I keep track of your hairdo. I know where you're at. I love you. But if you don't reciprocate 
and respond to my act of giving you total, complete forgiveness, you will not be with me in my home in the future. I love you. I want you to be there. But you've got to make me on my terms. That's the term of you must be born again. You must allow Christ to forgive you of your sins. Forget the baptism. Forget the church. Forget the American dream. You need Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. You need to be born again. And once you're born again, God pours out that love, that grace. And you and I, as born-again individuals, we still need to respond. We need to respond to him in obedience, in respect, in worship, in reading his word, in fellowship with him. He loves us so very much. The big question is this, do you love him? Oh, sure I do. Really? How does he know by the way you treated him this week? How does he know that if you didn't talk to him this week? How does he see that if you never let him talk to you this week? How does he know that when TV becomes more important than worship? How does he know you love him when you attack his other children? You see, God cares for us. The question is, do you care for God?